All right, let's turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 31. And here we have seen how the apostle has shown us back in chapter 5 that one of the implications of understanding the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ and how our salvation works, justification through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, one of the implications is when you know that you're saved that way, not upon your own merits, but upon the merits of another, you have a, a full assurance that you are going to make it all the way to the end because as we've seen what God begins, he brings to completion. And that is an enormous gift. And we've seen, uh, we talked about this in the past couple of weeks, that this is an essential element of the Christian life. If you're always wondering if your daddy loves you, you're really not going to be an effective servant in his vineyard. But if you know that your dad loves you and that he's granted to you in his will the entire estate, that changes everything in the way that you work in the vineyard. So the assurance of our salvation is essential to our fruitful living for him. And that's the reason that Paul makes so much of it in Romans 8. He's coming to this massive crescendo in this symphony that he's written in the epistle to the Romans. Now, having finished the crescendo in our lesson today, we'll see that there are some implications of that assurance and of God's predestinating love of his people from all eternity. There are things that have to be talked through. First of all, what does this mean for the promises he made to the Old Testament saints? Is he turning his back on those promises? Paul will take Romans 9 through 11 to discuss that. And secondly, if that's what God has done for us, what does that mean in the way that we're supposed to be living? And so with Romans 12, he picks up the second major implication of this, which is ethical. The first one is sociological, but then secondly is ethical. How shall we live in light of this mercy that we've received from God? But we're coming now to the major conclusion of this first section of Romans where Paul is showing us how our salvation works. Now, God could do this without revealing it to us, but here we see he's revealing it to us. And as Moses said, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children that we may abide by all of it. So we want to take in what's been given to us. It's given to us for a reason. It's revealed to us. So let's dig in and let's make it part of our deepest convictional lives so that then we have the theological and and psychological and spiritual framework to move forward in our Christian lives. Well, let's look at Romans 8 then, verses 31 through 39, and we'll try to unpack this in the few moments that we have. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously Give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That text is worth memorizing, guys. Well, as you know, if you read Stott's commentary on these verses, he categorizes this text as, Paul's five unanswerable questions. And you see five questions there. They're rhetorical questions. Uh, they have an obvious answer to them. They're unanswerable. They are definitive. They are final. They are complete. They solve the riddle of whether we can lose our salvation once we've been brought into Christ. And other scholars will suggest that these be put into two categories. Verses 31 through 34 and verses 35 through 39. In verses 31 through 34, most scholars say what Paul is talking about here is uh, our relationship to God in terms of his justice. In other words, can, can we survive the scrutiny of his justice? Will his justice finally do us in because we're sinners? Will we be able to survive that? Uh, in his courtroom. So it's more of a legal, forensic sort of environment in verses 31 through 34. When you get to verses 35 through 39, the question is, can anything separate us from the love of God? So now we're not talking about his justice as much as we are his love. Uh, will our Father continue to love us even though so much is arrayed against us, especially our own sin? And our own weaknesses and failures, will God still love us even in the midst of all of that? So on the one hand, can we survive his justice? The other, can we, uh, can we maintain his familial love? So one is the courtroom and one is the family. One is justice and one is love. And it seems to me that that category fits the text fairly well. So I'm suggesting that in our outline. So first of all, let's look at verses 31 through 34, and we'll see here that Paul is teaching us that we cannot be condemned by God's justice or we cannot be condemned in God's courtroom. We cannot be condemned. Now, that's an amazing thought. So let's dig in and see what he's saying. In verses 31 and 32, he's first of all saying, no one can impoverish us. That is, no one can take away from you what you have. Nobody, no thing. You've been given the... Uh, judgment of acquittal. No one can take that away from you. They cannot impoverish you. They cannot diminish you. So Paul begins by the principled statement that God is for us. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, Paul uses this kind of language. What then shall we say to these things? You, you see it in chapter 6, verses 1 and 15. You see it in chapter 7, verse 7. Paul will uh, give us these amazing truths 
about God and about our salvation. He says, what can we say about this? It's kind of like he's, he's always wanted to take it to the next level. What's the meaning of this? How can we press this further? And gentlemen, it's a great example of how we're to contemplate everything in the scriptures. When you read something profound, you need to be saying, now what can we say about this? Or what more can possibly be said? Or what are the implications of this? Christians are not just reading the Bible, they're contemplating it. And Paul is contemplating his own sermon. He's asking himself, uh, what then shall we say to these things? In light of this, what could be said, he's saying. And here's what he's saying. If God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us. Now, this is seen, this whole section, verses 31 through 39, is what we call an inclusio, a bookend. And the first bookend is Romans 5, 1 through 11. That if we've been justified by faith, we therefore have peace with God. Remember that text? Paul is now bookending this whole section of 5 through 8. And it's basically how God is for us. And given that, uh, we should have complete assurance. Now, he says, who can be against us? Now, this is not to say that nothing is against us. The, because the fact of the matter is, you look at the rest of the Bible, you see we've got all kinds of things against us. Well, let me give you three. The world, the flesh, and the devil, right? These are arrayed against us, and any three of those could bring us, any one of those three things could bring us down. The world is arrayed against you, and you're, you're seeing more and more signs of it in our culture. You may have been fooled by it back in the 1950s, but over these years, we've seen increasing hostility publicly expressed uh, against Christianity and how damaging it is to our society. Uh, I remember from the earliest days of, of my being a Christian back in the 1970s, people would question whether the Bible was true. They would question whether the Bible was relevant. But now they're questioning whether it's moral. People are actually saying that one of the biggest problems in American culture is people who believe the Bible is moral. God's immoral. He destroys people. The Bible's wicked. You think you have no enemies? <laughs> think again. The world is arrayed against you. And if there's no restraint, if there's no revival coming our way soon, it's going to get worse. You can count on it. It's just the nature of, of human evil. So the world is arrayed against you. The flesh is arrayed against you. You have a war going on inside of you in case you hadn't noticed. And I'm sure you have. You probably noticed several times already this morning. It's amazing. The very thing I want to do, I don't do. The very thing I don't want to do, I do, says Paul. When I'm, when I'm operating in the realm of the flesh, when I'm just trying to be a moral person, I'm in warfare. So there is someone arrayed against you, and it's your old self. And then you've got the devil, and the devil is massively powerful. He is much greater than you are. But fortunately, of course, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. But you're not greater than he who is in the world. And the devil can slay you as soon as he's given permission by God. If he wants to take your life, you're out of here. You're gone. You can't defend yourself. Only the Lord can defend you. So you have these enemies arrayed against you. Paul's not saying you don't have enemies that are more powerful than you are. What he's basically saying is, what difference does it make if God is on your side? So if God is for us, who can make any difference against us in our lives? No matter how powerful Satan is, if God is opposed to him and God is defending me, how, what difference does it make how powerful Satan is? 
So that's what Paul is saying. He's saying that God is for us, and therefore our enemies become irrelevant in terms of their ability to destroy or diminish our relationship with God. So that's the first and overriding principle that's behind this. When you receive Jesus Christ as Savior, what you receive is God for you. Now, secondly, if you'll look at verse 32, he's going to give us one of the classic examples of how God is for us. And that is that God gave his own son for us. The, the word idion in Greek is the word for own, his own son. Now, you're his son by adoption. But here we're talking about his one and only begotten son. And he gave him up for us all. That's an amazing statement. And here uh, Stott quotes Octavius Winslow, if you read that. And it's an amazing statement that Winslow makes. He says, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. So what Paul is showing us here is no matter what the human machinations were, no matter what the human motivations were in the death of Jesus Christ and his uh, crucifixion, the one who is behind it sovereignly was the Lord himself. He is the one who gave up his only son. Make no doubt about it. He was the one who designed it from all eternity, knowing from all eternity that his people would be in sin and would need a savior. So God is for us. He proves it eminently in giving up his own son. And you can see from the text I've given here in Genesis 22 with the uh, instance with Abraham and Isaac, who is told to give up his son, his one and only son. Uh, and he was willing to sacrifice him, but God stayed his hand. And they took a ram from the thicket. And God promised that he would provide the sacrifice. And uh, century, century, two centuries, uh, two millennia later, God provides his own son on that same mountain, Mount Moriah. And he doesn't stay his hand. And his son is slain. Why? Because he's for you. That's why. So you'll see in Isaiah it was predicted that our sins will be laid upon him. And then Jesus in Matthew 20, 28 says that he's came, he came not to be served but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many, a payment for our sins, and so on. Now, thirdly, <clears throat> notice that since he gave up his own son for us all, God will graciously give us everything. Now, this is an important argument the Apostle Paul is making. It's called an a fortiori argument. And I've written that down for you in your notes. A means uh, from, and fortiori means stronger. So an a fortiori argument is from the stronger to the weaker, or from the greater argument to the lesser argument. So Paul is saying, let's take the greatest thing that God has done for your salvation, which is he sacrificed his own son. Now, if he's done that, will he not send his son back in all of his glory to complete your salvation? In other words, if he's done the most expensive thing for you, which is the death of his son to purchase you from your, your uh, captivity to the evil one, 
If he's done that, the hardest thing, will he not do the easier thing, which is to save you at the end? It's an a fortiori argument. Look with me, turn back a couple pages or four or five pages to math, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 5 in Romans and look at verse 10. And here's another a fortiori argument. If, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. There's an a fortiori argument. In other words, Paul is saying, let's take the worst case that you're an enemy. You hate God. And he loves you then and sends his son to die for his enemies and sends his spirit to quicken you and give you resurrected life and turn you around and give you, grant you the gifts of conversion. He did that when you were an enemy. Well, how much more then will he do the easier, which is to love his friends? Now that you're in Christ, you're his friend. Do you think he's going to leave you here and not save you? So you get, you get the nature of the argument. And these kinds of arguments are very important for, for our development and maturity as men. We've got we've to argue with ourselves sometimes. You know what I mean? Because sometimes you can be thinking, you know, does God really love me? Is he going to see me all the way through? And depending upon your own personality, some of you are Eeyores. You know, you doubt everything. You analyze everything. And, you know, every, you, you see the dark side of everything. And those are usually people that, that we like to handle our financial matters, actually, because <laughs> you're conservative and safe and you can see problems everywhere. But sometimes it gets to you, and especially in your relationship with God. You need to argue with yourself. You need a couple of nice off fortiori arguments that you've got in your hip pocket. You're ready to go. And Paul is giving them to us right here. Let's use them. If God sent his own son and shed his blood to pay for our sins, how much more will he come back for his friends in all of his glory and delight himself in taking you home now that he's paid the price for you? Don't be silly. If he did the most difficult work, he's not going to leave off the, the fun part at the end. It's crazy. Your father will take care of you. A fortiori argument. Now, notice the word charisatai, which the word charis means grace, and sometimes we use it for the idea of giving, grace giving. And here he says, will he not also with him still graciously, freely, on his own voluntary uh, action, will he not give us all things? So if he graciously gave us his son, he will... Now, it's still gracious, graciously give us all things. What are all things? Well, you can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and see what Paul may mean there by all things. But what he means is, uh, this is how you translate it. It means all things, everything, the universe. You get everything, everything you thought you wanted and everything you never even thought of that you want. And he's going to pile it up beyond your wildest dreams. So if he gave you his son, believe me, he will give you everything else. He gave you the greatest, his own son, laid him down for you. He will certainly then give you the rest of the cosmos. Another a fortiori argument. So Paul is saying, no one can impoverish you. And here's why. God is for you. And just look at what he's already done. And that tells you what he's going to do. So we need to remind ourselves. Now, notice secondly, verse 33. He comes to this next major idea that no one can indict us. What do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge? Who shall indict you? Who shall try to charge against you in God's courtroom? Who can bring 
any charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Now, once again, Paul is not saying that you will never have anybody who will accuse you of anything. You have people accusing you all the time, either to your face or let me let you in on a little secret. They're accusing you behind your back all the time. If you're living the Christian life, your speech, your conduct, your love for the weak, your care for the poor, uh, your evangelism, if you're living for Christ consistently or I mean, of course, it's up and down like this, but generally speaking, you're cutting a, a mean that's getting you a little better, you know, each year. You're really sincerely seeking to walk with him. Believe me, they're talking behind your back, I'm going to tell you. And you don't want to know what they're saying. But every once in a while, you hear the whispers and the rumors, and you know they're accusing you. Sometimes, if you're in Christian leadership, the devil will raise up somebody who just takes on a frontal assault like you cannot believe. It's just clearly dark and sinister and demonic, and you can feel it. That will happen on occasion, maybe not to everyone in a very dramatic way, but it, it happens, and you should not be shocked. You should be dis, disappointed, but you should not be shocked. Why? Because you have many who are arrayed against you. There will be many charges coming at you. Why? Well, glad you asked. The name devil is in the original language, diabolos, which means slanderer, accuser. We're told in the Bible that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. He's the accuser of God's people. It's one of his major strategies. Now, the devil has a couple of major strategies. One of them is to tempt you, to allure you, to pull you off the track. But I really think his more dominant strategy is to discourage you by accusing you. And so that thing that you said yesterday is still on your conscience, and you're thinking, I'm such a lousy person. How could I possibly be a son of God? Those promises don't apply to me. I, I, I forfeited my opportunity a long time ago, or that sexual sin that I committed, or that thought that I had yesterday, or the way that I just blew off my, my wife yesterday and just treated her like she was a dog. How, how can a person like me be a Christian? And, of course, sometimes your wife does wonder if you're a Christian, of course. But, but the devil will take all of those experiences and he will try to keep them in your head. And he'll pick them up and he will start accusing you with them. See, you see what you did? You know what you did. You just said it. You just thought it. And you know what? How, what makes you think you're a real believer? What makes you think that these promises apply to you at all? Don't you see how you've... You think, how do you think you compare to the Apostle Paul? How do you think you compare to Jesus? Do you look at anything like him, really? Do you think people really uh, assume that you're a Christian? Do you think that you should think that you're a Christian? All this rubbish keeps coming into your head. Some of you fight with that all the time. That's his job. He is perfectly wicked. And one of the most wicked things any being can do is to try to come between you and the one who redeemed you. And he's doing that all the time, eating your lunch and trying to separate you and separate your confidence from you in the love of Jesus Christ. So Paul is not saying here, you don't have accusers. You don't have people who bring charges against you. Here's what he's saying. What difference does it make? When God, the one who knows everything, 
and who is perfect justice with a capital J and who will not let any sin go unpunished, who will never wink at evil, who will see that perfect justice is meted out against every sin of every human being and every angelic being, and there will be absolutely no escape from his justice. When that omnipotent, sovereign God declares that you're innocent, what difference does it make what any other being says? Let them go straight back to hell where they belong. That's what Paul's saying. So he's not, he's not saying you don't have accusers. He's saying, what difference does it make, really? Who can bring any charge in God's court that sticks with you when God himself is the judge, has made a sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent declaration that you are innocent and he's already declared it and he will not change his mind. Is it not true that your accusers are wasting their time? Why should you waste yours in listening to them? Now, I'm not saying that we Christian men should not be open to criticism and that we should not be constantly changing and listening carefully, especially to our wives. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that. I'm saying what we shouldn't do is accept a charge against us that labels us as guilty before God because you're not. You're innocent before God. That doesn't mean that we don't have a sense of shame or that we don't feel guilty for doing things wrong. In other words, that's part of conviction of sin that turns us back into intimate fellowship with Him. What I'm talking about is the eternal charge before you that you're guilty. That's nonsense because the judge of all the earth has sovereignly declared in your justification. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you were justified eternally. The declaration has been made. The case is closed and your accusers waste their time. So Paul says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He is the one who declares us innocent. They're wasting their time. So no one can indict us. And then Paul goes on to sort of close his case here. He says, no one can convict us. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's just building his case. He says, if they waste their time coming into God's courthouse to try to bring a charge against you, they're certainly wasting their time trying to condemn you and play the role of judge. That's sacrilegious, by the way is for someone to play the role of God and to try to tell you that you're condemned when you're saved. And he says, why would anybody do that? And he says, let me tell you why that's completely futile. The reason is that Jesus is the one who died for you. It's true that God demands justice and punishment for every sin. The incarnate Son of God paid for your sin. And he happens to be the son of the judge in the courtroom. And he's bearing testimony for you. My blood paid for this one. 
I exhausted your wrath against his sin when he died, when I, when I died on the cross, oh God. This man is innocent. He has nothing to pay for because I paid for it. So Jesus Christ himself, God in the flesh, died for you, Paul says. Secondly, he says, let me tell you what else he did. He was raised. And as Paul says in Romans 4, he was raised for our justification. That is to say, his death on the cross was validated as sufficient payment because God raised him up from the dead to validate the fact that the payment was received on your account. So he was not only crucified for you, he was raised for your justification. Not only that, Paul says, he ascended into heaven. He's the one who is at the right hand of God. So you want to know who's, who's paid for your sin, who paid the bill? It's the one sitting on the right hand of the deity who has his ear, who's at the place of omnipotent power. The father has given everything into the hands of his son and his son is sitting there paying, having paid for your, your sin, having been raised by the power of the Holy Spirit and is now enthroned and exalted as the head of the universe. That's your lawyer. That's your advocate in God's courtroom. And then he says, what else is he doing? He's interceding for you. He's whispering in the Father's ear the whole time. I love him. He's one of mine. Oh, just, just look. Look at him. Look how he's been transformed. He's one of mine. So Jesus has done everything for you. Paul is saying, what a royal waste of time for anyone to come into my courtroom, into God's courtroom, and to bring a charge against you. And then act like they're the judge of the earth and try to condemn you. So you see how silly it is, really, for us to condemn ourselves? How silly. You know who you're cooperating with? I just gave you an array of people that you're cooperating with, especially the Satan himself. You're cooperating with him. And John gives us advice in his first epistle for what we do when our own hearts condemn us. And the reason he gave us that advice, because in the first century, just like in the 21st century, men's hearts condemn them. And you need to learn what the remedy is. You physicians, you need to know how to diagnose something and then how to prescribe the remedy for it. And this is what Paul is doing. He's diagnosing common human failure and he's giving you the remedy for it. You go back to the word of God and preach to your heart until your heart stops condemning you and remind yourself that your condemnation is impossible because it's not based on your performance in the first place. It's based on the perfect performance of Jesus Christ. So if you think you're condemned, you must think that the work of Jesus Christ was not sufficient for you. You said, no, I wasn't really thinking that. Actually, you were. Because you were thinking of your performance as being your argument before the throne. Stop it, as Bob Newhart says. Bob Newhart has a great video on counseling. And he says, no matter what your problem is, i got two words for you. Stop it! And that's his... And so Ron Sadlow, our most sensitive pastor, has taken that on as his pastoral approach. Stop it. Whatever you're doing, stop it. So the biblical answer here, stop it. Stop condemning yourself. But fill your heart with these precious arguments from our salvation that Paul is giving us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we cannot be condemned by God's justice. Douglas Moo in his commentary quotes Chrysostom, who, of course, was a 4th century archbishop in Constantinople. And Chrysostom, who, who was a great preacher, he put it this way. He says, 
Yet those that be against us, so far are they from thwarting us at all, that even without their will, they become to us the cause of crowns and procurers of countless blessings, so that God's wisdom turns their plots into our salvation and glory. See how really no one is against us. <laughs> All right. Secondly, we're going to move along. Look at verses 35 through 39. Roman numeral number two, we cannot be separated from God's love. So if you're safe in the courtroom, I promise you you're safe in the living room. If you're safe in God's justice, you are for sure safe in God's love. That's what the apostle is saying here. And first of all, A, verses 35 through 37, he's saying, our sufferings cannot separate us from God's love. Now, why does Paul make this argument? Well, it's obvious because men like himself and his friends are like men today. That when you get into your financial woes, and your physical ailments, and the grieving of losing parents or siblings or friends, you begin to wonder sometimes, is God in this? Does he love me? Does he even take notice of me? And Paul is saying here that your sufferings cannot separate you from God's love. He says in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he lists tribulation, distress, persecution, when you're being opposed and persecuted for your faith, do you think that this means that God has withdrawn his love from you? And he says, not only the persecution that comes, but what about your own natural deprivations? What about famine or nakedness? What about when you don't have enough to eat or you don't have enough to wear? What about when you got more bills than you do income? Does God not love you then? Have you been separated from his love? Well, let's go further. What about danger or sword? What about when your head is on the block and the sword is getting ready to come down and remove your head from your neck? Has God separated his love from you then? And Paul, of course, knew what this meant in his own life. And what does he do in verse 36? He quotes the Bible, Psalm 44, 22. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And from that text, then he draws this conclusion, verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, I want us to look at four fundamental principles from these verses. Number one, bad things happen to God's people. Bad things, evil things, disappointing things, things that take the, the, the air out of your lungs, and sometimes take the, the, the temporal joy out of your day. Bad things happen to God's people. And I've listed there three texts in First and Second Corinthians, which provides for you a litany of Paul's sufferings. You think Paul didn't understand the power of suffering? This man was shipwrecked on several occasions. It's like, you know, some of you may have been in a plane crash. Most who are in plane crashes don't sit at tables like this. They're, they're gone. Uh, but some of you may have been in a plane crash, but what if you'd been in about eight or nine plane crashes? You'd think maybe you were being picked out by the deity, wouldn't you? Well, Paul was in several shipwrecks, uh, very, which, of course, usually led to death. He survived them all. And, and, of course, we know that he ends his life by being beheaded in a Roman prison. 
Paul knew what it was to suffer, but he's saying to us, bad things happen to God's people. And so when it happens, you shouldn't think that you're picked out as being some unusual case. And the reason Paul says that is because this is the way Jesus lived his life. He suffered, and we are in Christ. And so just as we experience the power of his resurrection, we experience the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, secondly, we are intentionally prepared for these sufferings. Look at verse 36. Paul is saying, you think that when the sufferings come, that means that God is showing disfavor toward you. Paul quotes Psalm 44, verse 22, to make the opposite statement. He says, oh, contraire, how long? It's not that he's removed his love for you. No, this is the insignia of his love for you. Because what he does with his saints is to fatten us up, feed us, strengthen us, so that we can go out into the world, testify to the crucified and risen Jesus Christ, and be slaughtered for it. So we are fattened for the slaughter. That's the whole game plan. So we look at the world and we have 6,000 ethno-linguistic groups that have no, virtually no Christian witness in their ethno-linguistic group. There are over 16,000 of these in the world. 6,000 of them have virtually no witness in them. You say, why are we stuck at 6,000? Because all the easy ones are taken. These are the very dangerous ones. You can lose your life going in there. And so since when did Christians begin thinking that we're supposed to be in Christian mission and save our lives? Paul is saying you're badly mistaken. When you are called to Jesus Christ, he bids you come and die, as Bonhoeffer said. And that's the only way you can be engaged in his mission, that you already give up your life. When James Calvert, the English missionary, was on his way to the Fiji Islands, and they were going to drop him off to do his missionary work in the Fiji Islands back in the 19th century, the captain of the ship, an Englishman, said, Mr. Calvert, do you understand, if you get off at this island, you're not going to survive. These are cannibals. And Reverend Calvert said, that's fine. I died before I came. So you die before you go into the mission, realizing this is your purpose. So Paul is reminding us of this profound reality that we're called to die with Jesus. So you're not separated from his love. This is the purpose of his love. You give your life as a martyr. You're not out there beheading other people who disagree with you. That's the technique of some other religions. No, in our religion, following Jesus, we give our heads for the sake of communicating our gospel. And the gospel is confirmed by the blood of the martyrs. And so our blood, our sacrifice, our willingness to go at whatever cost in our businesses and in the community, in our neighborhoods, in our families. Don't complain if your family doesn't like you because you're a believer. That was predicted. People will speak ill of you. That's your role in life because it was Jesus' role. So Paul says, we are intentionally prepared for these sufferings. God is preparing us for these sufferings. And they accomplish something. His glory and the salvation of the world, to, to name two. Now thirdly, we shall triumph over all of our sufferings and all of our enemies. We shall triumph over all of our sufferings and all of our enemies. Uh, in R.C. Sproul's commentary on, on this text, a brief commentary he's written, he mentions Frederick Nietzsche who complained about the decadence of the West. And this would have been late 19th century. 
And Nietzsche says, the reason the West is decadent is primarily because of Christians. Christians are the worst scum of the earth because they vaunt virtues like mercy and pity and grace. And Nietzsche said, we need a new humanity that expresses the real core of what it means to be human, which is what he called the will to power. And so the phrase, might makes right, was popularized after Nietzsche. The essence of what it means to be human is to exercise the power of your will. And he said, what we need is this new humanity led by the Ubermensch, which means Superman. You wonder where Superman comes from. And the Superman is the one who wills to power. And through his willing to power, he brings others in under him and restores the new humanity. Well, guess who is handing these out for Christmas to his henchmen? Of course, Hitler. On Christmas, he handed out Spake Zarathustra from from Nietzsche to his friends. Now, what's interesting, Paul says here, we will be Ubermensches. That's German. But he says here, we will be Hupernika. Uh, You know, uh, Nike just means conqueror or victor in the Greek. Paul says here, you're going to be super Nikes. You are going to be uber Nikes. You are going to be more than conquerors. You are going to be the supermen of the world, but not through the will to power. You're going to be the supermen because you lay down your life in weakness. And it'll be through your weakness that the strength of God is going to be expressed. And one day, gentlemen, you're going to see it. We look weak now, and to those who vaunt the will of human power and believe that that's where all the action is in politics or business or military or whatever it is, and they see Christians as weak, (laughs) hang around, pal. Uh, At the end of the day, what you're going to see are the, the brethren, the brothers of Jesus Christ are raised up as the super conquerors of the universe. And Paul says, don't forget it. Yeah, you're, you're laying your life down now. Yeah, you look weak now. But you're not going to look weak then. We are more than conquerors. And fourthly, how are we conquerors? Through the love of God. Through this tender, precious, forgiving, gracious love. That's how we conquer. Not through the will to power, but through the will to obey our Savior. So the Apostle Paul is saying, don't think that your sufferings are separating you from the love of God. Your sufferings are the insignia of God's love of you. And furthermore, through your sufferings and laying your life down, you are going to be the brothers of Jesus Christ ruling forever. Now, lastly, in the few minutes we have, let's look at B. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Not only can our sufferings not separate us, nothing can separate us. Paul ransacks the human library the the human language, to try to come up with the words for everything. Neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor rulers, nor the things present, or the things in the future, neither powers, neither 
the dimensions of life, the height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. You know, Paul is persuaded of some things. He uses this word here, pepismai. And it means I am persuaded. And you, I've listed some verses there where Paul is persuaded. You know, sometimes we'll say, you know, I'm convinced of this. Well, Paul, Paul is telling you, I'm convinced of this. That there's nothing that could ever be devised, including your sin, that could separate you as a child of God from the everlasting love of God. And this is the very foundation of our Christian experience and our Christian ethic and our Christian mission is that we rest completely in the sovereign, persevering love of Jesus Christ. Now, lastly, let's look at the implications for just a moment. Number one, certainly we have every right to be supremely confident in our salvation. You have every right. And let me just add to this, you have every responsibility to be supremely confident in your salvation. It's your responsibility, says Peter, to make your calling and election sure. You need to do that, not to be presumptuous. If you've not given your life to Christ and surrendered your life to Him and asked Him to come into your life, don't act like you have assurance. That's presumption. If you've sincerely trusted Jesus Christ, asked Him to come into your life, you're walking with Him, it's your responsibility to make your calling and election sure, sure, to be confident. And the way you do that is meditating on these very verses. I was talking to someone not too long ago who told me he struggled with assurance of his salvation. And I gave him a number of verses, and this was the main one right here, this text that we have today. Contemplate it. Like I say, it's worth memorizing. And if you're struggling with assurance of salvation, I especially encourage you to memorize these verses. Secondly, we have every motive to take great risks in our mission. Those who do great things are usually people who know how to take great risks at just the right moment. Richard Nixon was a, an amazing analyst of, of other leaders, their personalities, their thinking. You know, he, he was sinister in many ways. Very, in a lot of ways, he was very dark in his own thinking, the way he operated, but he was brilliant. And Nixon wrote a book on leaders, and when he, the greatest leaders he ever met. One of them was Churchill, and probably he said the greatest. And he said the thing about Churchill that was the greatest, Churchill knew the very moment when to put everything on the line. He knew exactly when to do that and how to do it, when to exercise complete risk, risking everything, including the nation of, of, of Great Britain. And that's a gift we've been given. We're re we've already died. So now we're ready to risk our own reputations, what people think of us, our financial lives. We're willing to risk everything because we know that the Father loves us and has provided for us. Thirdly, we have every reason to be continually thankful in our lives. Thankful. Always. Paul says always being thankful in every circumstance. I don't mean giddy. I don't mean superficially hilarious. I mean thankful. In the midst of your deepest sorrows, thankful. Why? There's nothing, including the deepest sorrows, that can separate you or his people from his love. And lastly, we have every expectation to be absurdly happy at the end of our lives. 
every expectation to be absurdly happy at the end of our lives. So we're thankful now. We have the joy of the Lord now. But we're confident that there's coming a day soon when we will have unadulterated, uninterrupted, unimpeded joy. And we eagerly long for that day. Why? Because of this text. That we know that His coming is our salvation. That His coming is the Father's love coming to capture us, His sons. And we eagerly long for that day. That's the reason that we sang just a moment ago, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from His hand till He returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your indefatigable, undefeatable love. And we pray that we may live in this love and express it to others around us for your everlasting glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.